Well, church, it goes without saying that we had one of the most joyous starts to the week and one of the most horrific finishes to our week in, in Kansas City history. And we've been on this, this journey. We've called it the unshakable journey. And the premise is this, is that while our, what feels like our worlds are shaking and rattling, we serve and follow an unshakable God. And we need that reminding, but it also begs the question, is that true? Is that right? Because it doesn't feel super unshakable right now, would you agree? One of the things that I absolutely love that's come out of this tragedy, and perhaps you've seen it as well, is that almost too many churches in our city to count have banded together under one phrase, the church, the church loves Kansas City. And they've opened up a fund through the National Christian Foundation by which all of us as a local capital C church are coming together putting in money to these funds that will go to, to four things. Um, funeral expenses, medical expenses, counseling for anyone that's been impacted by the events on Wednesday, and then a crisis fund so that the church can respond effectively and immediately should this happen or something like it again. In the midst of all of the tragedy around this, I gotta just say, there is something special about Kansas City and about the churches in Kansas City. Having pastored for now nearly 25 years in this city, I can tell you there is something really unique about the heartbeat of the various congregations from different styles and structures and all of those things coming under the banner of Jesus and saying, what does it look like to be the beating heart of Jesus in our city here and now? And it's happening in ways we can see and in ways that we can. Is that not cool? That's really cool. And I want to just thank you, Westside, for being a part of that, whether you knew that or not. But, but our leadership is moving in the direction to say, man, how do we wrap our arms around where the hurting is happening right here and right now? I also find it really um, timely that we're in this one series. What is this? We're, we're participating with churches not only all around our city, but all around the world, focusing on Jesus as the Messiah, looking through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're all teaching from the same passages all over the world as the one capital C global church. And that's phenomenal. And what an important reminder. And what is today's message that I got assigned? And by the way, the, these uh, sermons weren't like devised by us here at Westside. It was literally by one of our Korean churches, not ours, but a Korean church that we partner with in Korea. They came up with all the different kind of titles and passages. And today is called The Fighting Messiah. And that's... Um, I think that's really poignant for where we find ourselves in what feels like battle. Would you agree? And I think we need to be reminded that, um, and I've said this before, that Jesus, if you look through the, the Gospels and you read the actual Jesus of the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus was not nice. Just, there's no nice moments 
of Jesus in the gospel. He's kind, but not nice. Do you get the difference? There's a ferocity to Jesus. There's a, there's a gravitas to who, to who he was. Yes, he's the Lamb of God, but he's also the Lion of Judah. And if we ever need uh, uh, to be reminded that we have one who sits on the throne contending and battling, this would be one such moment. Would you agree? That as the Apostle Paul would say, like, hey, our battle at the end of the day isn't just flesh and blood, but there's like a spiritual reality going on here. And so the fight that we're going to look at today, by the way, is not a fight against someone who believes different than you and I, or a fight against somebody who votes different, a fight against a different kind of ideology or some sort of culture war. Like, actually, that's not the fight that Jesus is most after. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus goes into the wilderness by himself, led by the Holy Spirit, to take on the devil. That's his fight. It's a cosmic one. And I just have to kind of, I have to tell you a few things about this. One is, I gave, I taught from this passage like less than a year ago. So when I got this assignment, I was like, cool, sermon prep down, right? <laughs> and then I, it took me a while to get there, like all the way up to this morning, I'm like, well, if God, you're giving me a mulligan on this, what did I miss the first time? <laughs> right? Ah, someone said the whiteboard. Yeah, there's no, there's no whiteboard. I can do it. Don't need the whiteboard. Well, C.S. Lewis says a few things about the devil, and I think they're, they're really important. He says there's two errors as it relates to the devil. One is, is to um, essentially assume it's always the devil and he's under every rock and it was the devil that kept you from the parking spot right and all those things and I think in me I I so like that just feels so uncivilized that I go to the other era error that C.S. Lewis talks about which is to to not actually give him the you know, to to acknowledge him as the reality for what he is the enemy of God working in seen and unseen ways. The, what the scripture tells us is that there is a physical reality to our existence and it is material and it is concrete. And there are disciplines by which we, we understand the world through science and through biology and through medicine and all of those important things. And there is a spiritual interlocking and we live right in the between of those things. And C.S. Lewis goes on to say that we kind of fall into this cartoonish picture of a, a red cape and a pitchfork. And we fall into this anesthesia of being lulled into thinking or forgetting that there is actually a battle at play. And I think on Wednesday, we were again awakened to the reality of there is an enemy of God. Would you agree? To that... There, there is evil in the world, and there is a source to that evil. And I believe Jesus would say to us that this world and your existence and your experience of the world will not make sense unless in your view of the world you understand that there is an enemy of God. And he's working 
through systems and he's working in the realities of our lives, of our city, of our world, and down into our own battles, down to the battles that, that you and I fight. And I'm just, I want you to just take, take a moment. I want to just ask you, what right now is your battle? What's the battle that you're facing, that you're contending for? It might be a, a relationship. It might be you're getting bullied at school. It could be this unrelenting addiction that you can't shake. It could be that your marriage right now is just hanging on by a thread. It could be that you're waiting for a diagnosis. It could be that you're not sure how to make ends meet at the end of this month. You could be contending or battling for a, a daughter or for a son or for a grandchild. It could be dark thoughts that you don't know how to shake. It could be for a friend that you don't know how to help. What is your battle? Do you have one in your mind right now? I'm not going to ask you to share it. But I think it's important that as we go to this passage, we, we have in mind what we're contending against and for, to know that we have someone fighting for us in it. Do you, just give me a head nod if you're like, yeah, I got some. Give me a head nod. Yeah? Online? Give us some acknowledgement. Speedway? The same. What, what is your battle? Because you have to name the battle in order for us to understand that God battles for us. I want you to just look with me in Exodus. From the very beginning all the way to the end is a story of God contending for us and with us. Here, Moses is with the people and they're being chased by the Egyptians and they're in captivity. They're in slavery and they want to be free. And Moses says to them these words, do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians, I love this, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again how comforting would those words have sounded. And then look at this, verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Moses is saying this to an actual people. He's saying to them as a people, you're going to be fought for, and God's going to fight for you. And we know a bit of what it's like, even as recent as this week, that as a people, in the tragic events of Wednesday, what it was like to be fought for. Like many of you, I was down there, had two of my daughters and one of their friends, and we, um, as we left the rally, we were heading down, I believe it was McGee Street, and we'd gotten maybe one or two blocks when for, I don't know, two miles long, I could see a sea of first responders, sirens blazing, lights flashing, about every 20 yards, one after another, one after another, one after another. There's no one else on the street. We were all just walking down the side. Different vehicles, different kind of you know, golf carts. I mean, they were just all focused. And I just go, this is not pageantry. Something really tragic has happened. 
our first responders, our frontline medical personnel. They went in the direction that we were heading away from. And that's what first responders do. And I just, I want to thank you, first responders, frontline medical personnel, for doing what you do. And then there were two civilians, and there was Paul Contreras, and there was Trey Filter, I think is his name, and his wife, Casey, and they took down uh, one of the um, alleged shooters. And it was Casey, I think, that picked up this semi-automatic weapon and, like, carried it off. I'm like, oh, my goodness. If that hadn't happened, if there fight or flight reactions went differently if they hadn't stepped into that moment. I mean, we're so grateful to be fought for. We're so grateful to experience rescue. This whole series, Jesus as the Messiah, Messiah essentially means rescuer, to know what it feels like to have someone step in for all of us as a people. That's what we're talking about. That's what Moses is saying. God's going to step in for us as a people and also for you as a person and, and for me. Have you ever had someone, like, fight for you? Like, for you. I was, um, I played two years of college baseball until I just burned out. I was, if you're a baseball fan, you'll appreciate this. I was batting below the Mendoza line, and it was time to quit. <clears throat> Um, but I thought it was pretty hot stuff coming in as a recruit and all that stuff. And, and, um, so in my freshman year, uh, we were, it was, it was a practice on a Saturday. It had rained really heavily the night before. And, um, so the field was just swamped and we were out there doing, um, you know, field prep and the like when the captains of the team, the upperclassmen, the seniors, they gathered everyone around the puddles and they said, here's what we're going to do today. It's freshman initiation day. Freshman, we're going to take you down, and we're going to put you in your place. And uh, I got to say, I'm not a fighter. I've just, I've never, I've never been a fighter. And so I think I had like one of those hoes, you know, and I was like holding the hoe and kind of backing up. And I was the first victim. I was the first one they were going after, and they were kind of like slowly kind of felt like, uh, you know, the, Max, uh, the Michael Jackson thriller, like where the zombies start getting closer and closer. It's kind of what it felt like. And they were, they were kind of getting closer. And I'm feeling myself getting backed up against a wall when, bam, Johnny Rose, Johnny Rose, the walk-on, the guy who wasn't even sure he's going to make the team from out of nowhere, comes and blindsides Jeff Clewer, the captain, and takes him down. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. I mean, it's like unbelievable. Just flattens them. And then they start tussling and other guys jump in and pretty soon, no one's thinking about Dan Diebel. It was awesome. <laughs> and I hadn't really thought about that moment. And actually, I'd never talked to John, John Rose, about it. I called him on Monday. I'm like, hey, can we revisit this, you know, the whole thing? And one of the things he told me that I feel really bad about He's like, Dan, for the rest of our freshman year, I carried all the upperclassmen's bags and luggage. And like, I had no clue. I was just like, I was scot-free, never looked back. 
having no idea that there was some consequence to his courage. There's something that cost him to step in. Let's look at what Jesus does as he fights and contends for us. I want us, if you're able, would you stand with me and grab your, your old school Bibles? Go ahead. You can stand. I'd like us to read this as just a way of saying we're standing at attention to what you have to say to us, oh God. And you can grab your Westside apps or your old school Bible, turning to Matthew chapter 4, as Jesus goes to do battle for us. Then Jesus, verse 1, chapter 4, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. And Father, we just ask for a receptivity in our hearts. We ask for open and discerning minds for all that is true. And we ask for courage to walk out what you impart to us today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we all say together, amen. You may have a seat. Thank you. There are four things. There are four things, but I'm only going to give you three because I realized I ran short of time in the first service. So if you're following on your apps, uh, we will just get to the three points, and, um, and then, you know. You can read the scriptures and go figure out what the fourth points are. How about that? Make it a treasure hunt. First one is this. About this fight in the wilderness is that Jesus was prepared for it. Therefore, so can we. What was he prepared with and how was he prepared? Well, first, who led him into the wilderness? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. It wasn't the devil that enticed him. It was the Holy Spirit that led him. There is something beautiful about who Jesus is as fully God and fully man. That there was this interdependence, this, rely, this reliance upon the spirit of God. And this you and I also have in the battles that you face today. Do you forget that? It's so easy to do, isn't it? We just think it's all up to me. It's all up to my own strength. And yes, we cooperate with God and it is the very Spirit of God for all who call him Lord. The Spirit of God dwells in us. I have a um, spiritual director I meet with monthly. His name is Adam, and he, he's reminded me of what a mentor has reminded him many, many times when he would get anxious, when he would feel overwhelmed, 
his mentor would just say to him, Adam, Adam, you have the Holy Spirit. Adam, Adam, you have the Holy Spirit. Greater is he, the scriptures say, that is in you than he who is in the world. Adam, you have the Holy Spirit. And we have that level of preparation in the battle that you have. This isn't left up to you alone. That the very Spirit of God that was with Jesus in this moment, that led to his conquest, is the Spirit of God that relies on you, and I believe is seeking more power in and through you if we'd only lower our resistance to him. The second thing we have is, and we'll see it here, we see it three times. Temptation number one comes, and in verse four, Jesus answered, it is what? Written. Written. And then we go to verse seven, the second temptation, and Jesus says, it is also what? Yeah, written. And then in verse 10, Jesus said to him, for it is, it is written. I mean, this three times, three times, the one who, like the scriptures call the logos, the, the word, like the one who was all truth incarnate is reciting the scriptures in the midst of his battle and he's carrying it in him. And I just love those three words. It is written. There's just, there's so much weight to it. There's so much gravitas towards it. It's just, it's so like, like, so, I don't know. There's this permanence to it. And it's way better than I saw it on TikTok. You know what I mean? It is written, is resting on the eternal wisdom of God versus whatever post or snap or influencer or disruptor or opinion of the day. We might as well just be people like this getting tossed around by a violent sea, the scriptures would say, by a howling wind. Who wants to live like that in your battle? There's some research that has said um, 400,000 people surveyed who interact with the Bible, and here's what they found, that if there's going to be any noticeable difference in in us and how we engage uh, with others in our lives, we need to read the Bible at least four times a week. If less than four, there will be basically no tangible difference between you and I and anyone else of any other belief system. So four is kind of the linchpin. Four is kind of the turning point. In order to demonstrate those qualities that the Holy Spirit provides, such as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Like, in order to live the kind of life that we see Jesus living in the Gospels, we need to be a people who have not just on our tongue and not just in our head, but like literally in our hearts, the ability to say it is written. And here's my confession to you. Um, I've gotten really, like I don't know if right now, if I were put in a time machine and I were to go back um, 20, 30 years, I'd be a really bad pastor. Like I, you know why? 
Because if I don't know where something is, I Google it in the Bible. I've gotten lazy. I have a lot of it up here, but man, it's going to take me some time to find it down here. And I just wonder for how many of us. Like, what's your response in battle? Is it, it is written? Or, hey, I heard once or I saw on TikTok once. I'd put it this way. I, I would say we are the most discipled people in history. As an American church, we're, we're the most discipled people in history. If you define discipling as consistent, reinforcing learning in a way that changes your thought patterns and your actions. We are the most discipled people as an American church in history. The problem is we're discipled by all the wrong things. By news feeds, by pundits, by the influencers. They have their place, they have their voice, but is it on a foundation that says it is written? Y'all, it's a violent, raging sea out there. We're getting tossed. So I think we have a cue here from Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit. We also have the opportunity to be drawn into the greatest words of hope and courage that's ever been written right here. Jesus was prepared. Number two is he um, resisted every core temptation that you and I face. Therefore, so can we. And we look at it here, and um, we, I talked about this last time I, I, I taught from this passage, but look at it with me here. So, so Jesus is tempted because he's starving, and he's tempted by bread. What is that temptation about at its core? The temptation is about appetite. The desire for indulgence, the desire for consumption, the desire for more. Could it be food? Yes. But in a larger context, it's this insatiability for always pursuing the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, thinking that thing is going to fill me. And, 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 and going about our lives just going, what's next, what's next, what's next, and ultimately we'll get to the end of our life and we'll say, now what, so what? That's the drive, temptation, of appetite. What's the next one? We're told, throw yourself down, the enemy says. And, 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 and the, the enemy is really smart. The enemy is using um, scripture, but contorting it and twisting it and saying, if you throw yourself down, the angels will catch you like it says in the Psalms, and everyone will go like, wow, that's amazing. And what is that temptation? The temptation is to, to seek others' approval, for them to go, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Like that, like fame, celebrity, wow. And people pleasing can be one of our core temptations, the temptation for approval. What's the third one? Third one is where Satan says, all this, all the kingdoms of the world, all of this can be yours. What's that about? Power. In other words, ambition. Like you can go after it, you can conquer, you can win, and all those things. Now, does appetite have its place in a healthy context? Yes. Does approval? Yes, we want to be in relationship. Does ambition and having drive? It's all, it's all important, but man, when sin gets in there and twists it all around, it gets ugly really, really fast. And we know this throughout history because if we go all the way back to the beginning of time as it's so beautifully told, what were the three temptations in the garden? You will have, if you eat from this fruit, you will become like Who? God, 
What's that, what, what is that temptation about? Power, or in other words, ambition. This fruit was pleasing to the what? That's about appetite. And hey, here, come do this with me. Okay, what's that about? Approval at its very core. You see what's happening here? Jesus is going into the wilderness to take what was lost in the very beginning and to make it right again. How cool is that? The symmetry of the stories. Powerful. Scholars call it the recapitulation theory. What was capitulated, what was lost, what was forsaken. When, when it all just seeped in, the, 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 the poisons into things, and now Jesus is going in. It's like, I'm going to make this right again. See, this battle has been going on at a cosmic level ever since that day when it was lost in the garden. And all the way till where you and I find ourselves today and beyond. Jesus, I would say, has kind of bigger fish to fry because he's going after the biggest thing. The thing that's impacting you and I, namely the enemy of God, Satan. The third thing in the fight here is that Jesus won the battle and he plans to finish the war. He won the battle in the garden he resisted. But if you notice, Satan goes away and in a different um, gospel it says, and, and, and plans to come back for an opportune time. The angels come in and attend to Jesus. It's a really kind of interesting passage. But where does this battle really come to a head? It comes to the head at the cross where Jesus lays his life down. The ultimate fight on our behalf, the one we can just take for granted all day long, like I did with Johnny Rose. I had no idea. He carried luggage and baggage and all that for the rest of the team for an entire year. I was oblivious to it. But I'm like, you did that for me? Yes. Yes. My friend Dave Rhodes puts it this way. What Jesus did in the desert personally, he did at the cross permanently. And then I would add this, that when he returns, literally and physically, to make all things new, he'll be with us presently and perfectly. There'll be no more death and no more crying and no more suffering and no more tears and no more anguish and no more last Wednesdays. And it does beg the question, doesn't it? Well, why Wednesday? If Jesus won the victorious battle against the enemy of God, namely Satan, at the cross. And if he died for our sins, why are we still experiencing evil? And that's why it's so important we understand the storyline. For you U.S. history buffs, what happened on June the 6th, 1944? Yeah, so, so that was D-Day, right? That's when we stormed the beaches of Normandy, and it's when we won the decisive battle in the war. What happened on May the 8th, 1945? That's V-Day. It's when all the treaties were signed. That's when the war was finally announced to be over. In, in, in our reality, in the redemptive storyline of God, we, we live in between D-Day and V-Day. We live in between the decisive battle and victory of what Jesus did for all creation and what he offered his life for all people 
at the cross. And that day when he finally returns to make all things new, we live right here. Where the enemy is just heaving its last gasp. The enemy doesn't even quite know probably that the battle's been won. But you and I, we do. We do. This is the, this is the hope that we have. This is where we stand in a place as people who are not in denial of the hardship of the evil, as people not immune to suffering because suffering is a part of being a follower of Jesus, but a people who are always anchored by the bigger picture of hope and by the truth of what the gospel, the good news of Jesus, means in you and in me, by the very power of him who is in you than he who is in the world. And we look at the world differently and we walk through this world differently. And we even think differently about hardship. You know, um, when Johnny Rose stepped in and took down Jeff Cleaver, Jeff's a great guy, by the way. But um, I, ca I called John, like literally Monday. We hadn't talked about this in 30 years. And, um, and I said, why did you do it? And how did, what were you thinking? And he said, he said three things. He said, Dan, I'm, I'm learning this is just who I am. And he, he wasn't being braggadocious. He was just like, when there is injustice, this is what I do. And sometimes it gets me in trouble, he said. He said, secondly, did it because you were my friend. He said, you were my only friend at the time. This is who God is. He's the one who fights with us and for us and in us, in our battles. And he calls you friend. But there's a third thing that John said. He said, when they huddled us up and they were telling us what they were going to do and how they were going to beat us all up, He's like, I, he was saying, okay, this isn't right. This isn't right. What am I going to do? He goes, I know what I'll do. I'll take out the captain. He goes, that ought to do it. <laughs> and that's what he did. And no freshmen were harmed on that day. <laughs> so when I say that Jesus had bigger fish to fry, it doesn't mean that he's not right there with you in your battle. It does not mean that. What it means is that he's going to go into the desert and he went to the cross because he's going to take out the captain. Scripture is called the prince of this world. So that forever, once and for all, there, there will be no more tears. There will be no more crying and we will be with him and he will be with our God. And that means we see things differently today, just like Jesus did on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Those were literally the words of Jesus, and they're crazy words. You know why they're crazy? Because those guys knew what they were doing. They were professional executioners. They had been plotting this thing for at least years. And Jesus has the gall to say, forgive them. 
when emails came out about the church loves Kansas City and this fund that was being raised, a lot of questions were asked and one question and, the, and an FAQ kind of was issued. And I think it was the last question that said, will there be any care for the two juveniles in custody? And the answer is yes. There are Jesus followers today meeting with those two young men. Praise God. Jesus took out the captain, knowing, forgive them, for they do not know what they've done. And I'd like to end our time praying for those two boys in the spirit and in the way of Jesus. It might be hard because we feel the anger and the loss. But when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, I don't know how we, how we can't. And so, Father, yes, we pray for the children and the victims. And Lisa Lopez's family, we pray and lift them and we say, we ask for your comfort and your presence. And God, we pray for these two young men. We pray for the two pillars of what's always been true about your throne. We pray for justice and we pray for mercy. We pray for their families, for their parents, for their siblings, for their friends. And we ask for all of heaven to be upon them. We pray for full repentance. We pray for godly sorrow. And we pray for deep presiding hope. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray.